Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. In every episode, we'll have engaging conversations with WNL's expert faculty, bringing you again to the colonnade, even if you're hundreds of miles away. Just like the conversations that happen every day after class here at WNL. You'll hear from your favorite faculty on fascinating topics and meet professors who can introduce you to new worlds and continue your journey of lifelong learning. Thanks for listening. Today, we'll be talking with Janet Ikeda. Janet is Associate Professor of Japanese at WNL. In the past, she has served as head of the East Asian Languages and Literature Department, a Fulbright Program Advisor, the Associate Dean of the College for Student Academic Support, and President of Phi Beta Kappa Gamma of Virginia. She is also on the board of the Joint National Committee for Languages and is a past president of the Association of Teachers of Japanese. Prior to graduate school, Janet spent three years studying the way of tea at Ura Senki Chado Institute in Kyoto, Japan. She was heavily involved in the creation of the Senshinan Japanese Tea Room in the Watson Pavilion and her English translation of a 16th century tea master. Janet, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for asking me to join you. So we are currently in stage three of reopening Virginia as of this recording. And with the exception of coming to work and going to the grocery store, I'm pretty much still sheltering in place. So to be here in the tea room with you today is extra special. Thank you. Isn't it beautiful? I have some things that I want to share with you and, and, and talk about but I'm hoping there'll be a time when we can open up all these buildings and people can come yes, join us for yeah. tea. It's not the same without a lot of people, is it? No, Students. it's not. There's a strange echo in an empty building. Yes, there, there is. It, it always relaxes me to be here in the, in the tea room. It's, it's inviting and serene in every way, from the tatami mats and the sliding paper doors to the smells and the sounds. And, and whenever I'm in here, I realize that we probably wouldn't have this space if it weren't for you and your courses on tea. How did you decide to study tea? I would say it all started because of an extraordinary high school teacher. And maybe you didn't expect that answer, but I love <laughs> high school teachers. You know, I had, I grew up as a third generation Japanese American in Ohio, but by the time I attended high school, I was in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, DC. My high school French teacher, Jean Morden, who I adored as a ninth grade French student. Well, she had been a Navy wave during World War II and had been trained at the Boulder School. And lo and behold, in the 1970s, she said, I'm gonna start a Japanese language class here in a public high school. And <laughs> I didn't know any better, so I went from French to Japanese. I didn't know much Japanese, except for a few words that had to do with food. You know what I loved about her and what made me pursue the study of Japanese, which led me to Japan, which led me to the study of tea, is that um, it was her sheer enthusiasm for the learning process. Oh, true teacher. She, she was a true teacher, but yeah. you know what I loved about her in the class? She was the embodiment of the, of the great student. Oh. She was the one who was more tickled and delighted with a word or a lesson or something that came up in class. And I, I can see her, she has passed away, but I can still see her in my mind, almost dancing in front of the class with excitement. So she's my model as, as a student. Oh, what a gift. It is, and you know, I have her 
her photograph in my office and she looks down on me every day, every <laughs> teaching day. And so there I was, I took two years of high school Japanese, then I headed off to the University of Hawaii at Manoa. My mother was from Hawaii and I had, a, I had a grandmother there then and lots of relatives. And I was taking Japanese and there was a tea club at the University of Hawaii because they have a beautiful tea room called Jakuan. You're going to like the translation, the tra hut of tranquility. Oh, yes. And of course, it's a tea house in uh, the East West Center Garden. Um, beautiful tea facility. And that's where I started tea, uh, studying tea sort of as a university student. And I just want to say in that beautiful Japanese garden is a meandering stream. And it's in the shape of a character, Kokoro or Shin, which means heart. So I, I never forget that beautiful setting and learning tea there in Hawaii. Um, so there are a lot of firsts in this story is that the University of Hawaii, um, they offered the first credited way of tea course. So I was in the tea club, then I said, oh, I'll take this way of tea course. It was taught in the history department. And it was just a wonderful entry to Japanese culture that I had not experienced before. And what I learned right away is that life is not a straight trajectory. And I try to share that with students because they want to have a straight line to graduation. And I'm going to say, you know, it's not always going to be straight. And so I took the four-year gap plan. And I don't recommend it to everyone, but you know, after my junior year, it's typical you go to study abroad. So I went uh, on the Crown Prince Akihita Scholarship to study language at the Stanford Inter-University Center. Uh, very good, you know, I said to myself, my plan was the typical one year study abroad after junior year, period. But while I was in Tokyo, I said, wouldn't it be wonderful to study more? And so I applied for a tea fellowship that had really come out of this course. This course, there was, I was in the inaugural course, and there was a Senso Shitsu Fellowship named after the Grand Master, the 15th Grand Master, and I was fortunate to receive that fellowship. So I went from Tokyo to Kyoto. So that was the plan for year two. Boom, study tea on scholarship. Well, what happened is that I stayed for another two years. So I was there for four years. Mm, why study tea so deeply? Well, as I tried to explain <laughs> to my very practical parents, who were second genera generation Japanese Americans, I think I remember explaining it to them because they had the exact same question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, why don't you just come home? Especially after year two was over, right? Uh, and I think I remember always telling them it was the tip of the iceberg. You know, mom and dad, I'm only seeing, I'm studying tea every day, 24 seven. Um, in a tea, traditional tea school in Kyoto, and it was hard for them to understand all of this. Remember, they were born and raised in this country. And I said, I'm always seeing the tip of the iceberg. I've got to stay another year. And then I stayed one more year. And, and then finally, I, I decided I better go back. But it was the feeling of being in the tea room. It was the academic side. I had the language. I had the history and culture. But it was the sheer sensation of, of working in the tea room. Because you are working and wearing kimono every day. Yeah, and, and the feeling. I mean, I, 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 I get the sense of it just by being in, in 
in the moment here. So um, you've mentioned before that you love the poetry in tea. Is it the poetry found in the rituals of a tea service? I, I think so. I think, but I think it's also what you just mentioned earlier, or being in the tea room. I think there's a whole poetry to being in the tea room. So I think about what the word poetry means, and you can look up any standard definition. You know, it's some kind of special text in which there's a special intensity given to the expression of feeling and ideas. And I'm gonna jump on the word intensity because that's what I felt every day for the three years I was in the tea school. And so I think my whole life was sort of poetry. But more practically speaking, yes, let's look in the tea room. The poetry you can see here, there's a writing. Oh, there's a scroll in, the, in what we call the alcove or the tokonoma, right? And I love the scrolls because they can come from classical Japanese poetry. They can come from Zen sayings, koan, these paradoxical sort of uh, puzzles. Um, they can come from the Chinese classics, the wonderful, you know, um, sayings from Confucius. And, and, the, and the scrolls change daily, is that correct? Daily, or should I say with each tea gathering, okay. you would always change it. And so for our meeting today, I just changed the scroll about 45 say? minutes ago, because I had a scroll up for commencement. Oh, right. Oh. But now I put up this scroll, and this is one of my favorite scrolls, and it says Sessa Takuma. I learned about it in Japan. Four characters, let's look at the characters and what they mean. The first one, cutting, cutting. Second one, chipping away. The third character is grinding. And the last character there means polishing. What does it mean? It is a well-known phrase in Japan in general, but it really comes, I think, from the Zen tradition. And again, I'm going to refer to a colleague and, and I would say a friend and an acquaintance that I made over the years. Um, it, I like the translation from Victor Hori, who was in the Daitokuji Zen Training Monastery and now is a professor at McGill University. Mutual polishing. Mm. All those characters. So what does that mean? You have all your students. They're all rough stones. You're going to put them in a tumbler or a tumbling machine, and they're going to learn from each other by rubbing against each other, chipping away and grinding. And in the end, they are going to end up as more polished individuals. Now, I took the professor out of the equation there, the teacher, and that's what's important. Students need to remember they're here to learn from each other. So I love this scroll. Oh, that's beautiful. I think this is really what that, we're trying to do. That's beautiful. And for, for our listeners, I'll take a picture and, and we'll post it to our podcast notes for today. That'd be great. So how did you decide to teach a course on the tea ceremony at WNL? Well, it all started out in 2002 when spring term was six weeks. And I was wondering, what could I teach because spring term is a time to do something kind of innovative and different. So I thought I'd teach a tea course. I took a tea course as right. an undergraduate, but I'm not in history. I was going to make it more literature and, and culture. And so there I was, 2002, I'll never remember. It seemed very, very hot that spring term. I had received a funding from the dean, uh, then Dean Betch, and I had all these basic utensils, which I still use today, many of them. And there we are, we were in a regular classroom. And first of all, of course, we're doing the uh, typical classroom activities. We're doing the, the, the lectures and the discussion, and we have readings, and yes, we have quizzes and tests and, and papers, but every one day a week, I would have a lab. 
So before I had a tea room, it was basically me and cardboard boxes. <laughs> so I had all my utensils in cardboard boxes. I would bring them downstairs. We used to be in the red house and I would put them all out. Just wonderful memories of everyone sitting around actually doing the procedure at a table. Enjoying tea and understanding mm -hmm. and the ceremony tea. of it. Mm -hmm. The Debbie Tea Room is a masterpiece of traditional Japanese architectural design and artisanship. How did this project come about? Well, I'd say it's a miracle, you know, and that's the miracle of WNL. It's not as if I would even think to ask for something like this. It really is just the, the miracle and the, the wonder of teaching here. I think it started with a man coming into my office one day. He had been hired as an outside consultant for the Reef Center. He later became the Reef Center director. And I owe a lot to Peter Grover, who just jumped on this idea of, oh, teaching tea, engaging students sort of in a hands-on way with art objects. Um, he loved that idea. And so he's the one who advanced the idea. And of course, you know, I tried to provide him with as much, you know, description and the meaning of the tea room and how I would use it. But just look here in the Watson Pavilion, we see all these beautiful other objects unrelated to the tea room that are in glass cases. Now, are we gonna open those glass cases and touch them? I don't think so, no. right? That's what I love about tea. We are handling all these objects. We're handling in the tea room, a very safe environment, and students are learning how to move and to handle objects. But there, it's the most intimate way to engage with art, is to bring a, a, a wonderful tea bowl to your lips yeah. and drink tea. So I really owe him um, that, that credit. And then 2006, um, I was just looking at photographs of the tea room construction because I've been putting on Facebook. I think it was finished July 25th. But look at the door right there, the door to the Watson Pavilion. Mr. Suzuki, one of the best tea room builders, I would say, uh, in the United States. He is Japanese um, uh, born and, of course, Japanese trained in tea room design and construction. He basically pulled up in front of that door in a white van. And I thought, what? <laughs> My team, our tea room is in that van, and it was. It was. Now, some of the larger components, the mats had already been sent from Japan. The cedar ceiling boards that you see there had already been sent from Japan. But this man basically jumped out of what I call this magical van and just started bringing components. Some he had already made, but some of them he actually constructed here, and he was here for about a month. I understand that the name of the tea room is very special to you. Would you share how the tea room got its name? Well, as I said, the tea room constructed in 2006. I started teaching 2006 fall. It was dedicated at a board of trustees meeting in winter of 2007. But it was in 2011 that we received this tea name, you can see it right there, as a gift from the 15th generation grandmaster of the Urasenke school. Now this is a lineage of tea. Um, it's one of the three major tea schools. And it's of course the tea school where I studied. And I studied on the scholarship of the 15th generation grand tea master. Uh, he's now known as Dai Sosho. He just turned 97. Wow. And I think- Tea must be healthy. Yes, that's what he <laughs> says. So make sure you drink your tea. And it's a wonderful gift. Um, not all tea rooms have tea room names, but I am so um, 
appreciative, I think, of his uh, recognition of what I'm trying to do here at WNL. And Senshin An is the name he chose. You could see it there. I have it on a beautiful scroll. But it is also, he chooses the name in his own calligraphy. He writes a scroll. It's mounted beautifully. We receive that as a gift. And it's also put on a wooden plaque in the same if you looked at the scroll, it would look exactly like that plaque. It's read from right to left. There are three characters, Sen, Xing, An, and then his so-called signature. Sen means to purify or to cleanse or simply to clean. Xin is mind or heart. Remember I talked yes, about that yeah. beautiful garden. And here we have uh, mind or heart. And An, which is my favorite character, is hermitage or hut. So I translated it as clearing the mind abode. We are here to clear our minds. If there's any place at WNL where you need just a moment to yourself, I hope people will just duck into the Watson Pavilion when it's open. Usually there are docents right there at the front uh, door and just sit here on these benches and, and take in the tea room. Think about the meaning of the characters because we are so distracted. All of us, students, professors, everybody alike. You've said before that your course on the tea ceremony lines up very well with a WNL education and that it's changed your teaching and helped clarify your ideas on a liberal arts education. Do you think students stepping outside their comfort zones in your class helps them learn better, not only in your class, but for their rest of their time at WNL? I think college is all about getting outside of your comfort zone. When students come to WNL, I want them to have I want them to have the best learning experience. Yes, I want them to feel comfortable and safe, but it's not like sitting on a couch petting your dog comfortable, right? I want them to be able to um, challenge themselves, challenge each other, care about each other, care about themselves and look for opportunities to get outside their comfort zone. So that might be taking a unique class. My biggest worry is that students sometimes come here and are box checkers. And I know a lot of the faculty use that word. And, and we promote it in many ways. There you are sitting with your first year advisees and you've got all the list of the FDRs, the required courses. And we're like, okay, you could box, you could check this box, you could check this box. And I have to pull back and say, but remember, yes, you should check the boxes. Yes, I want you to get your degree here. Don't forget that last PE course, but you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to take a course that maybe that's not, doesn't have a box by it, right? You, maybe you should study abroad. Maybe you can't study abroad. So that's why I think the tea course is a little bit like study abroad. When we're in that tea room, look, look, when we're sitting in that room, we're not in Lexington yeah, anymore. Very different feel. So that's what I've come to see, that the tea room has made me reflect on how I teach and not be consumed about what I teach, what, I, what material I need to cover. I think one character that I like to, a Chinese character that I talk about in first year Japanese is the character to teach. As you know, the, the Japanese adopt, they have three writing systems, but one writing system are the characters from China. And 
the character I talk about is the word to teach. And you know what it is a picture of, right? Some, some of the characters are um, sort of illustrations. And the character to teach is a person holding a stick over a child. Oh, that sounds terrible. It sounds terrible, <laughs> but you can see that was the traditional way in China, probably the traditional way in the United States um, a few decades ago. And again, I'd like to throw away the sticks, but I think the students need to sort of hold the stick over their own head, guide their own education. And that's the tea container I have in the tea room today. It has the first poem. I, I love poems in the tea room. They're not only on the scroll. There's a poem on that tea container, and it's the first poem of the 16th century tea master, Senorikyu. He wrote 100 didactic poems. And I'll just paraphrase it for you, because I always use it the first day of class. This poem on the container is, when you enter the way of tea, you are your own best teacher. You don't only teach a course on tea. You're also a scholar of Japanese literature and an accomplished translator. What kind of courses have you been teaching recently? So I teach um, first year Japanese, which I love because uh, there's so much energy enthusiasm uh, with the beginning class of anything. I teach advanced Japanese, the last uh, term of fourth year Japanese, which is literary translation. And then I teach all the literature and translation courses. And um, I love all of those courses. And they're all very different in, in many ways. The literature and translation courses, one of course is the tea course. Another one I teach on poetry and drama. Uh, then there's another course which I call the great books of Japanese literature. And we go from pre-modern to modern times. And that's, a, a, you could call it a survey course, but I really want to call it the great books. And then a course I just taught this past winter um, was Animals in Japanese Literature, Real and Imaginary. And it was a lot of fun. And I had a fun class, even though the last three weeks right. were, were on Online, Zoom. Right. But who doesn't want to talk about Japanese animals? Not only, you know, magical creatures that can transform themselves like tanuki, which are like uh, raccoon-like animals, or foxes, which the Japanese feel transform, but also, you know, Hello Kitty. Uh, Godzilla, um, Doraemon, Pokemon. So we talked about all sorts of things, and it was it was oh, great I bet fun. That was fun. It was fun. What what is it like teaching Japanese literature and translation, and and what part of teaching this do you especially enjoy? First of all, so I teach two kinds of courses: the the courses of literature and translation, where the students have do not have to have a background in the language. I just want them to re always remember that they are reading it through a veil. They are at the mercy of the translator and that works can be translated several times. You know, the best example is the monumental work, The Tale of Genji, you know, written in the 11th century by a court, aristocratic court um, woman. Um, you know, such a long work of 54 you know booklets i don't even like to use the word chaplet chapters but you know why are there multiple translations at least four i can think of and just to get students to think about that we're just reading one translation almost one person's interpretation 
Now in the fourth year Japanese class where we are actually translating and I always uh, choose works that have not been translated. I have a lot of fun reading a lot of contemporary fiction is that you immediately realize that translation is always a work in progress. And it that's a lesson in life, I think. Constant change, nothing is set in stone. And I realize that students are like you and me. They're looking for the permanent. They want the fortress. They want the stone. They want to something to cling to in a storm. That's not our job here. We're going to weigh them down with those stones. If I give them stones, and stones can crumble. So I, I think the best thing I am trying to convey in all my classes by talking about translation or reading a work of literature set in another time, in another place, is how to deal with change and interpretation and uncertainty and impermanence. And maybe this is the Japanese part in it, is to see the beauty in all of it. So you talked about your your first year translation courses and then your your fourth year. Does enjoying Japanese literature require an appreciation or understanding of the Japanese language? No, it doesn't. Right. Because and, and at WNL we offer many different courses, literature and translation, for students who haven't studied the original language. It helps, certainly. But no, you don't, because the purpose of a translation, even though I did say it was an interpretation, it is the personal work of a translator, is that it does open a different world to an audience who would not otherwise have had access. And I will say, in my literature and translation class, sometimes the students who don't have Japanese background, language background, give some of the most insightful comments. Oh, why do you think that is? They're close readers. Huh. They're sensitive readers. They pick up on the nuance. Well, you mentioned uh, to me earlier that translation is complicated for more reasons than we might think. And you compared it to looking at a complicated rug or tapestry from the back. Can you explain that in a little more detail? That's a quotation I talk about all the time, and it's not mine. It comes from another work. It comes from the Book of Tea by Okakura Kakuzo, or also known as Okakura Tenshin. And just to give you a little background, he wrote it in 1906 in English for an English-speaking audience and for his patron, Isabella Gardner, and her um, group of high society women in Boston. He was trying to explain Channel Yu. But again, I took this um, quotation about translation to heart for all my classes. And he talks, just to paraphrase a little bit, is that translation is always a treason. He says, translation can at its best only be the reverse side of a brocade. All the threads are there, but not the subtlety of color or design. And I really want students to think about that, right? When we read in a translation, the threads are there. We can, we can read, closely read the story and look for the plot and other theme and themes and, you know, imagery, but not the subtlety of color or design. And that's not, that should not be a feeling of despair. It's just a feeling of humility 
that I'm not reading it in the original language. And so I may not see everything that's there. So it's all about the interpretation of meaning and not just uh, definition of words. And that makes sense. It reminds me of those books that have phrases from other languages that cannot literally be translated into English, like the idea of huga in Danish culture, which translates to a mood of coziness and comfortable conviviality with feelings of wellness and contentment. Uh, or one of my favorites, uh, as you know, the, the word komorebi in Japanese, which roughly translates to the light that filters through the leaves of the trees. Can you give us an example of a phrase that wasn't straightforward to translate? Well, there are so many, but one I've been thinking of, of more recently is just a word that used to come up when I was an undergraduate, you know, in a reading or, or when I was in Japan. And the word is sunao. And, and the Japanese see it as an attribute. And certainly the T school, they thought that to be sunao was an attribute. And so a lesson to students. If you go to the first definition alone, you're going to be a little surprised. So what's the first definition of sunao? To be obedient, meek, and docile. I know that the look on your face, <laughs> the look on your face is a little bit like the look on the students' faces and how I felt when I first not, came not across a, not the terror. No. And the second, but and that's what students often make the mistake of in translation. There'll be five definitions, and I'm sorry, you've got to look at all five because it's not going to be always the first one. And the second definition in a typical dictionary would be to be honest or frank or to upfront with one's feelings. But I'm going to take it uh, uh, to another um, plateau. And I'm going to point at uh, uh, some tea utensils that I have here in front of you and think of the bamboo. Now, students who've taken the class will smile because they know I love this. There's a wonderful triad in East Asian art of the pine, pine tree, you can see that on a tea bowl there, the bamboo, which you can see on a tea container there, and then do you see that ceramic sort of, it looks like a napkin ring? Yes. That's a bamboo design. Oh. That's, a, that's a beautiful lid rest from the grandmaster. Oh. And then plum blossoms, and it's called shochikubai. It's just a triad throughout East Asia, but it's telling us to live like those like the pine, to live like the bamboo, to live like the plum blossoms. So just in relation to sunao, I always think of bamboo. Jap the Japanese love bamboo. Um, you see it in Asian ink brush painting um, across East Asia. But why do they like the bamboo? It's because it's a beautiful plant, but it's so resilient. Yeah. The idea that it bends in the wind. And I have bamboo in my backyard. I, I've been growing it. And, you know, a wind comes along and they bend. And sometimes they bend completely over. But they don't break. They don't just snap easily. In fact, it's hard to snap them, especially, you know, when they're green. And so isn't that a lesson in life? And especially right now, we need that resilience. resilience. Yeah. And so we're not, we're being obedient, but we're being, we're being flexible and we're adapting to the situation. So I say we all have to be like bamboo right now. Yeah, don't we though? Well, and for our listeners, I'll take a picture of uh, what Janet was referring to, beautiful uh, tea bowls. And they're really works of art, aren't they? They are. I don't know.
So in a minute, we're going to talk more about WNL. But before we do, do you have any recommendations of great Japanese literature and translation that we could share with our listeners? You know, there are so many, but I, I've got one here with me. Now, this is a really old book. I mentioned my high school teacher, Jean yes, Morden. Yeah. Right? I had her in the 70s. She gave me this book. I still have the handwritten card that she gave oh. me. What did she give me? I think I was a year out of high school. I would always go back and visit her uh, when I came back home to Maryland. And here she gives me a great classic of Japanese literature, The Pillow Book by Sei Shonagon. I, I love it. I love it. I still read it. I, I still have this old copy of hers. I do read it in my great books. It was written by a court lady of the 11th century. And what, how could that possibly relate to our lives? Because it is anecdotal. It has lists, lists, things that are beautiful, things that are, are ugly, things that make me feel unpleasant. Yes, some of them are a little bit remote in time and culture, but some of them will just make you laugh out loud. And I think it's the, um, it's just a series of, it's not a narrative. Uh, some of them are little stories in themselves, right? Some of them focus around a poem because poetry was very important to the, the aristocrats of the Heian, um, period. But I think I would recommend that. So it sounds like it's a book that you could pick up, read some, and put back down. Absolutely. Okay. At any time. Oh, good. That, uh, good recommendation for what we're experiencing right now in sheltering in place, a, a book that you can pick up and, and yes. uh, put back down. So if we're interested in learning more about Japanese tea ceremonies, where, where should we start? You know, you, there are so many books on, on Chano Yu or, or the tea ceremony. Um, the one I use in class, I, I like very much. It is maybe oriented more towards a, an academic class, but I think there are gems in there. I really do. It's Wind in the Pines. It's a collection of translated essays um, and also essays by someone named Dennis Hirota, and I would really recommend that. But there are introductory books to Chano Yu, and of course, 1906, The Book of Tea. Yes, there are, it's dated, but there are still just these sections in there that relate to um, our lives today. And one is, in the Book of Tea, they talk of the tea room as the abode of vacancy. I'm using his archaic language, and he wrote it in English. And you look at the tea room, it is all about minimalism, right? Um, tomorrow, if I was going to talk to someone else, I would take down the scroll and put a different scroll. Right? I may or may not have flowers. I happen to have a Rose of Sharon there from my garden today. But it's pretty much an abode of vacancy. It's like a vacuum. We fill it for the moment and then we take the things away. Right? That's what it's, gives it the serene feeling. It yeah. is. Yeah. It is. And the sense of impermanence. It's not like your living room where you have the same painting usually right. there for years and years. How many people rearrange their furniture? every other day, right? We don't, so. Well, thank you for those suggestions. You've been at WNL since 1999. 
When you look back over your time teaching here, what are you most proud of? I think what I'm most proud of is my attempts to be a bridge. And you'll notice I have a tea bowl out here with a, a, with a bridge. With a bridge. Yeah. I have several tea rooms with bridge. Um, this idea that I, I am a bridge, that I am trying to bring to my course, to this tea room facility, um, another culture to the students and sharing it with them. And what I also enjoy is having the students be a bridge to the community, being an outreach. And so that's why we try to do teas for the community. But we also have origami demonstrations for the community. We also do, you know, write your name in Japanese. I have the Japanese TA, but it's getting the students to share their knowledge. Not me per se, I'm usually in the background, as you know, washing tea bowls. <laughs> it's training the students to share. And so I'm most proud that I hope in some way I've been able to be a bridge and to just add to the rich curriculum at WNL. What do you most enjoy about teaching at WNL? Creating opportunities for students. We've got incredible resources here. Incredible. Um, I'm very proud to teach here. It's, it's, it's using those resources wisely and being able to help students study and, and, and develop their thinking in very unique ways. What I often tell students, why I love teaching at WNL is A and B. So what's A and B? It's above and beyond. I, I'm sure oh. I didn't, I'm sure I didn't <laughs> coin the phrase, but I use it all the time. I want to see them soar above and beyond. On a practical level, yes, I write a lot of letters, a recommendation, but I tell students, writing a letter simply about, oh, you did well in class and, you know, you participated, etc. That's the bare minimum. That's the bare minimum. And it doesn't have to do with grades. I want to know something where you went above and beyond, maybe helping someone maybe contributing to the class in a very different way, not just showing off knowledge, but really incorporating the mission of the liberal arts in your life. I know that's a pretty lofty idea, but I want to see that growth. And that's what I love about being in a Japanese program is that you see them as first years and you just follow them. We all do, we all do. And you follow them and the type of person they are when they leave here. When you taken many groups of WNL students to Japan for spring term. When the students finally board that flight home to the United States, how would you say they've changed? They've changed. Some of them know it. Some of them don't know it. Some of them won't know it until 10 years out. That's just the way study abroad works. It's just the way it works. Um, I, I like meeting up with them actually a few months later in the fall. And when they come back with, oh, remember when we did this? Or, oh, I just had an email from my host family. Then I feel I've been a bridge, that I've helped create a connection for them. And one thing I've learned on spring term abroad is to hold back. I am not a professional guide. I'm a professor. And I think we forget the difference. I'm not a tour guide. 
And so I've learned to hold back. I want to see their reactions. I want to see their impressions before I go on and on and give my impressions. And actually, that's less important than what they're feeling right now. Sure, I, I, love, I love to lecture and to share what I know, but what I've learned about spring term is hold back, hold back. Let, get, give them yeah. give them time to discover and explore. I remember what it was like as a as an undergraduate going to Japan on my own through their eyes. Well, you and I were actually supposed to travel to Japan in April with a group of alumni travelers, and that was right when the world was closing down due to the pandemic. It would have been my first time in Japan, and and I was really looking forward to being immersed in the culture and learning about the different areas we were supposed to visit, and frankly, seeing the cherry blossoms in full bloom. Right. <laughs> was there something that you were particularly looking forward to traveling with alumni learners instead of student learners? I was looking forward to it so much, so yeah. I was disappointed. And I think what I was looking forward to was their impressions and reactions. Yes, I had my lectures all ready to go. Um, I, I knew what we would be talking about, um, but I, I cannot anticipate their questions and their impressions and reactions as older, as adults. And I think that would have added so much to my teaching here at WNL. It is always so it was incredible to see Japan or something that you study so closely through someone else's eyes. Yeah. Because then you start to look at it in a different way. You can't get kind of jaded or saturated. So know. it would have been a learning experience for you as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. And I think we could have had so much fun. And um, Well, we will have fun. I mean, we're, we're still planning to go next yes. March. So, <laughs> so it is When the world reopens. Yes, yes. Thinking of our future travels together makes me realize that while so many of our alumni know about your wonderful professional life, they may not know as much about your life, uh, your life outside uh, the WNL campus. What do you enjoy doing when you're not in class? When I'm not in class, I would say um, my husband and I really enjoy classical music. And so all the wonderful concerts, again, at WNL, these incredible groups that they bring in, or our, our resident, own. our own, yes. our own resident yes. we artists. we have a lot of talent here. And I think you might know my, my husband makes uh, musical instruments. He makes cellos and violas and violins, and I am trying to learn the cello. How our, is that going? Um, terribly. <laughs> I, am, I am the worst student. Um, I wish I had learned as a child, um, but it's... That has also been very good to always, when you teach, to always put yourself in the seat of, of the learner. Where is your favorite place to go in Lexington or Rockbridge County and what do you love about it? Well, I love living in a non-urban environment. I did grow up in a small town in Ohio, but I, you know, I, then I went to high school in a, a suburb of Washington, D.C., and I've lived in huge cities since then. Um, it is being in a, a kind of rural uh, setting. Um, we're not great hikers or um, 
campers. So my husband and I often will just take a very quick trip, I think it's in Rockbridge County, uh, to the George Washington National Forest. Yeah. I don't know if people will, you, you'll be the only person there. People don't yeah. go there. You right? feel very alone there, which you, is a wonderful feeling. And then of course, just the Chessie Trail because I like the sound of the water. Yeah. I just love the sound of the water. And then I'm just gonna say this, my front porch. <laughs> I really, I just, even before the world turned upside down, we just love sitting on our, our front porch. Well, your we, front the, porch seems like it's the, you know, in, in the middle of a wildlife refuge, so. <laughs> Uh, do you have a favorite Lexington area restaurant? And, and if you do, what do you order? Okay, well, I have actually two that I want to mention. There's so many good ones here. Yeah, there are. Uh, you know, there are going to be ones that I don't mention. But yes, you're going to anticipate this. It is Sushi Matsumoto. Mm -hmm. I do, and I, uh, we, we like Mr. Matsumoto and know him and are so glad he came to our small town to open this sushi restaurant. But you're going to be surprised at what I love to order. Okay, so I know sushi fairly well, right? Mm -hmm. I've eaten very good sushi in Japan and in restaurants in large cities here, but I love the Rockbridge roll. Everybody, <laughs> what, is, what is the Rockbridge? Everybody roll? <laughs> order the Rockbridge roll. So my department once had a like a student gathering, and we ordered a platter of sushi, and there was this, you know, there was the Rockbridge roll. I actually had to call later and say, what was that sushi? You just have to order it. What, it, is, what is it? What so is the fish? It, it's, it has um, sort of shrimp tempura, but it has a lot of toppings, crunchy toppings on, and it just has the best taste. It's a little spicy, a little crunchy, um, but I, 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 I think it has so many unexpected kind of textures and tastes. And what what is that? What is that Japanese word? Umami. Is umami. That, yes. Yeah, so right. it does have a uh, lot yes. of umami. And who would think uh, something called the Rockridge Roll would have umami? <laughs> it doesn't sound very Japanese. <laughs> and my second restaurant is a confession, and I don't think anyone's ever heard this. But when we ever have a big tea event. And you know, these take hours set up and clean up and like we parents family weekend when we're allowed to have a parents family weekend tea and we're serving 60 people and I'm running around with the students and we're all putting our hearts into the event. There's only one thing I want to eat on the way home. Pure Eats hamburger. <laughs> That's a great hamburger. Right. <laughs> um. I really enjoy being friends with you on Facebook and you post the most amazing bird pictures and uh, minus the, the hot picture of yesterday. Uh, have you always loved bird watching? No. I grew up in the country and as a child I, I, I saw birds of course living in Ohio but I can't say that I you know had my camera on them but of course now digital photography. I call myself the bar stool naturalist because you know those pictures I take I'm like sitting inside with a cup of coffee in an air-conditioned room you know I'm, I'm not <laughs> out not in a little like tent yeah. you know in the elements you know um, but there's just so much going on I live only five miles outside of Lexington, but the birds and the building of the nests and the, the, the nurturing of the young. 
our last swallow is going to fledge today. And I took a photo before I left. But I also realized how impermanent nature is, getting back to the idea of impermanence and beauty, but also impermanence and sadness. Because as you know, some of the photos, the nature can be very harsh. And, these, and, and I take it very hard and I shouldn't because that's part of, of nature. You know, when the little swallow fell out of its nest and my husband put it back, but I didn't show the picture on Facebook of two days later, I did find it on the lower deck and oh, it had died. Oh no, that is but the, hard. But there was a reason for that. I, I don't know if it fell out if again or if the others pushed it out, pushed it out right? Yeah. But you're, you're humbled by nature, entertained by nature, but it is unending. The, the story outside our window. Oh. So what are you reading right now? What I'm reading right now, it's by Jane Tompkins. It's an old book. Um, sorry, I, 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 I'm trying to think of the title now. It's, I, I think it's A Day in the Life of a Teacher. She's, she was a Duke University professor of English literature, and I'm rereading it. I read it years ago, and there's a reason why I'm rereading it, but it's, it's an old book, but it speaks so much to what I think I see is lacking in the university today. And it's the box checking and, and the sort of fragmentation of education that we're not looking at the students as whole beings. And I know that sounds very new age. And years ago, she wrote this book in the 90s, she was accused of being like a new age guru, right? Talking about, you know, students as holistic beings and, and educating the whole student. But I keep coming back to that over and over. It's not new, um, but it's something I think we have to remind ourselves over and over and over because we are so consumed by what we have to cover, in what time period, how to adapt to all this new technology or but, but we forget that we are helping to nurture the development of young minds. So, so on that note, if you had all of your WNL students in front of you right now, sitting in, in one of the auditoriums, what would you like to say to them? You know, that's a really hard question in many ways because there's so many things. Well, first I'd like to hug each one of them, <laughs> although I couldn't do that now. But, um, trying to think of um, a few things that I hope they will remember from what I've said. And I always say to students in class, I hope you leave with one or two things from this class, and it's not gonna be on the test or quiz, that you're going to mention to me at the, your 10 year reunion. Like, you know, I remember this incident. I remember this quotation and I hope that is something that will stay with them. But I can think of three. And one is that you have to meander. And it goes back to that right. life is what not a straight saying, trajectory. Yes, yeah, and you know, I use myself as, I use myself as the crazy example. And again, I take it from uh, poetry, Japanese poetry, and also from the tea room and from Zen sayings. But you have to be like clouds and water. You have to learn to flow. You know, yes, we want to be like the mountain, we want to be like Mount Fuji, we want to be solid, but you know, that's going to take them years. It yeah. takes us years to really know who we are. I so know, for I'm now, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. <laughs> and a second thing is um, 
they, they pick on this pick up on this very quickly. I, I covered in the poetry class, but also in the tea class, is this idea from linked verse poetry of medieval period. I won't go on and on there, but shallow to deep and deep to shallow. Okay? What do you mean by that? So it's the idea that you start from one, you go to ten, but you go back to one. And that's not that's not a part of our classwork. We're always taking them to 10 and pushing them to 11 and maybe 12 and filling their heads with knowledge and then, then testing them on it and then grading them on it. But I think what we should be asking, and I've only thought about this recently, what the question should be on the last day of classes to tell me what you don't know. What you don't know. I think the, the emphasis is so much on on accumulating knowledge and things, and it's important, I know that. I also am trying to resist the kind of linear progression that we have in Western society. You evolve, you go from A to B and C and D and end up at Z. But again, within the Japanese, non-Western perspective is you always go back to one. And so, of course, I have a scroll with the character one. And the last one is from a scroll, which I don't have up today, which was a gift from the Grandmaster. And it's Dokuza Dai Yuho, but I'm going to focus on the two first characters, sitting alone on a mountain peak. That's, that's what we need to do. Whether it's clearing your mind, whatever you're doing, and it doesn't have to be physically sitting alone on a mountain peak, but everyone, not only the students, we all have to find a moment in our lives to sit alone on a mountain peak. And you know, they do love that scroll. Yeah. And so these little bits and pieces that might not be on the final exam, I hope will stay with them. That's life lessons. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're game, I thought it would be fun if we wrapped up our podcast today with a Japanese vocabulary lesson. <laughs> if I say a word in English, would you give us the Japanese translation? To the best of my ability. Okay, all right. Yeah, it's, I, it's I, something I, situational. Right, right, right. Hello. So that depends on the time of day. Okay, so it's uh, right. so, morning. So, Ohio, Ohio gozaimasu. Ohio is more casual. Ohio, a little bit more formal when you don't know someone. Ohio gozaimasu. And we say it in class every morning, and I love it. Students see me at night and they say, Ohio gozaimasu. <laughs> <laughs> it works. You know what, it works. You, you know what they're trying yeah, to do. Right. Nice to meet you. So, this is typically used for the first time, and the word reflects that is hajime mashite, which, which talks about beginnings. So, nice to meet you for the first time. And, um, you know, the things you teach at the very beginning of the term seem to stay the longest with the oh, students. Right, right. So that's always a special phrase. Uh, goodbye. Goodbye. Again, this is a very tricky um, question because the typical answer, which everyone knows, is sayonara. That's so tragic. You only use sayonara if you're not going to see the person ever again. Oh, really? Or not for a long time. Wow. And Ruth, I want to see you again. Yes. So I'm going to teach you to say, Jamata. <laughs> Jamata. Right, which is, I'll see you again. Okay. So it would be very strange oh. if a student came to my office and said, Sayonara, I would, I would be like, where, 
So you don't say goodbye in Japanese. You you do if you're at the airport sending someone off who's moving to another country or area. You know what's so funny about that is on March 13th, Friday, when we didn't know that would be our last day of face-to-face class. Friday afternoon, I was doing a cultural activity with the whole Japanese program and all the students. I had brought a, a, a sweet bean dish to class. We had no idea what was going to happen. We weren't reading our email. The email didn't come out till later yeah. that afternoon. And But we knew there was a lot of thought yeah. about the pandemic. And at the end of that food session, we all laughed and said, Sayonara! We did. We did. We did oh, it as we did oh. it as a joke, and I never saw any of those students face to face again. Oh, I that know. Makes me so sad. I know the irony oh. of that. But they but they left having a great Japanese dessert. So. Oh, is there a way to say best wishes? Best wishes, I would say ogenki de, uh, and thank you. Arigato gozaimasu. Uh, and on that note, arigato gozaimashita, Janet. I really enjoyed talking with you today and being here in the tea room with you. And thanks as always to you for listening. We hope you discovered something new. To read more about today's podcast with Janet and check out other ways to continue your lifelong learning with WNL, you can head to our website, WLU slash lifelong. You'll also find WNL's faculty reading list, sheltering in place with a few good books, and information on how to join our new WNL book club. We hope you'll join us back here soon. Thanks again. And until then, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.